Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Please take your Bibles and open them to Jonah chapter 3. Um, I don't know if I don't power <clears throat> raise the rates, <clears throat> but it's hot in here. Um, it'll cool down here soon. I don't want to pass out up here. So <laughs> my wife is my thermometer. I, I often uh, like it cooler than than what she likes it. And I asked her, is it warm in here? She says, most definitely. So um, I think we'll change our sermon and talk about hell and wrath and judgment. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, again, thank you for the morning and for the joy it is to come, to be able to study, to to sit under your word as you speak to us is our desire as people who want to understand clearly what is going on with your character and, and how awesome you are. Be with your servant as he desires to deliver your truth and think rightly about what you have given to us in Jonah chapter 3. And so we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> like I said earlier, we're going to look at one verse and we pretty much have left it for a sermon such as this, just because it says some things that I think that's important for us to think rightly about God. So let me read the chapter. It's only 10 verses, but we'll focus in on verse 10, and your outline will serve you well to take some notes or write down and jot down some verses. But the Word of God reads this, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Now the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And Jonah began to go through the city, one day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and, and sat on ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared 
he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. I think it's often a question in the mind of the believer. A text like this, a verse like this, God relenting. Did, did the prayer, did the actions of the Ninevites, did, did it change God's desire and direction? And I think it's a, a healthy question to ask of the text as well as of the Scriptures as a whole. It reminds me of a young girl who writes her pastor engaged in a, in a, in a letter like this or a passage like this. And I want to read it to you. It says, Dear Pastor Jeff, Hello. I hope you're having a good week. Your message Sunday was really good. My daddy stayed awake the whole time. But that's not why I'm writing. I have a question. My best friend, Alexis, is a, is a real nice person. But one thing drives me crazy about her. She can't ever make up her mind about anything. What clothes she's going to wear, what food she is going to eat, what friends she will spend time with, what sports she is going to play. She changes her mind almost every day, and it's really starting to get on my nerves. It made me stop and think, does God do that? Does God change his mind? If so, I don't know if he and I are going to be, be able to get along for thousands of years in heaven. Please let me know what you think. I am worried. Sincerely, Jessica. Oh, yeah, you think about just the, the instance of that letter, just the thought of, of does God change his mind and it's a great question, like I say. And at first glance, verse 10 tells us, it gives us the, the probability that's what's happening here. At first glance, verse 10 seems to show that God changed his mind considering the original course that he had to destroy Nineveh. What's interesting to me, some of your Bible versions that maybe you have in your hand, in your lap, is, is that they took that word relented out and replaced it with repented which I think is a disservice to the word, the Hebrew word there, as we will find out here shortly. So the question we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? Do we have a God who waits to execute his divine purposes, waiting to see what we humans will do? Or is there something else in this chapter or in the character of God that is going on here? And beloved, I believe that's the case here. But before we dive into some of these theological questions, which I'm going to leave towards the end, I want to exposit verse 10 for us. I want you to get a sense in the original language what's happening here in verse 10. I think it will give us great insight exactly what God is doing here. For we have to deal with verse 10 in the context, in harmony, of course, with other scriptures and cross-reference. Why? Because we know our hermeneutic tells us that God is consistent. His character doesn't change. He doesn't do one thing for one group of people and something different for another Matter of fact, if we had a God who often changed his mind, we would be a people most disturbed. Why? Because if he wants to change his mind, he can change the course of salvation, the course of history, and the course of time. I think one of the joys of knowing the greatness of our God is the fact that he is immutable, which means that he is unchanging, that he is fixed, that he is character that we can rest on, that we can have hope on. I think of other cults and religions who have the a theology that believes that their God is, is ever-changing and how wrong that is and how unstable are their ways when they think about worshiping a God that they have fashioned in their own minds. What we can say about our God is that He is a gracious God. Amen? God has every right, and this is important, He has every right 
and just, and is just to condemn us to hell when we sin. Do you agree with that? Yet, we see here in chapter 3 is that God is gracious to a city in light of their repentance. Now, you've been with us over the last so many months. We, we looked at the importance of faith and repentance and, and how they go together and how salvation is, is, is spent on that, that, that coin. One side is faith, one side is repentance. They lead to the same course of uh, salvation and redemption. We know that we must believe in Christ. We know that, the, that you must repent or turn from your sins. And by the way, just, just to remind you that they play off each other, right? I have faith in Jesus Christ that drives me to repent. And I repent because of who Jesus Christ is. And they go in harmony with, with an understanding of repentance that bears fruit in belief. It not only affects the mind of the believer, it affects the heart of the believer, and it causes them in, just in such a degree to live in such a way that they honor the Lord. They're transformed. I think we would do well if the church would awaken our souls to the reality that so don't say that you're a Christian. Show me that you're a Christian by how you are living a godly life. Why? 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy for I am holy. That's what God commands His people to be is to be like no other, like, not like the world, but like what God has established. And this is exactly what we've seen. We've seen this with these Assyrians, Gentile nation, who heard God's message, they believed, and they repented. This is nothing short than the power of God, beloved. This, I mean, you think about this. We know, as we were to continue on in, in chapter 4, that, that there was roughly 120,000 people in this city. Verse 11 of 4.11 points to that. Over uh, more than 120,000 persons who, who came to know salvation, who believed in this living God, who, who repented of their sins. And like I said earlier, this is nothing short than the power of God. With this truth, impacting the souls of sinners. And that's why it's so vital when you, when you preach on Psalm 119, the importance of the Word of God in our souls. That we don't take for granted the living Word and, and how it affects us and what to think about God. And when I say about think about God, what to rightly understand about God. I think what's also interesting when you to do a study, a, a historical study of, of the Assyrians during this time. The Assyrians had a belief, prior to them believing and repenting, it was, it was a man-centered religion that believed that, that men have to be tough and never repent. Never show weakness. Matter of fact, weakness was a weakness. And yet, what's remarkable about Jonah chapter 3 is not only do the people hear the message, but the king hears it, steps down from his authority, and he does the same. He believes and repents and calls everybody to do the same. I mean, this is nothing short than the miracle of God of transforming the hearts in the life of the Assyrians. So to see the people, let alone the king of the Ninevites, repent and turn to Yahweh, you know God's at work. And by the way, when it comes to salvation, God is the one who's at work. He illumines the heart. He, he, he draws the sinner. He, he helps them understand why they need salvation. 
I mean, this is just how powerful our God is to take sinners like you and I and, and make them transform to be still yet sinners, but yet living in grace and being transformed into his likeness through the power of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, that, that, that's the way it's always explained in the scriptures. This is God's way. This is God's salvation. And I want to emphasize the fact when we read Jonah chapter 3, I wanted to impress upon you how awesome this chapter was, how amazing our God is. And it continues. When we look at verse 10, we notice our God is, is a gracious God. With that understanding, we approach verse 10. The verse gives us two verbs that govern this verse that helps us think rightly about the character of God. These are actions by God as a result of the Ninevites and what they did in repenting and believing in verses 5 through 9, where they believed in God and repented of their evil ways. And even then, look at your eyes at verse 9. It, it wasn't any guarantee. The king didn't say just put on sackcloth and ashes, repent and believe, but, but there was this desire for, for God, because why? The king understood that God could either bring his judgment or he can show his grace and mercy. He does this with a rhetorical question. Verse 9, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. He is not looking at the call of repentance and believing as something that's going to flip the switch for God to, to cause him to do what they want him to do. This is a call for mercy. This is a call for the reality that, that the king understands that we are wicked, that we are a people needing of judgment. And yet, also understanding and hearing the stories of the Israelites, knowing that there's mercy there, he's begging for it. He's asking for it. In no way was this a formula that if we say we believe in Christ and repent, then God has to do what we tell him to do. Listen, man's not in control here. God is, right? If anything, the king recognizes that God will do according to his divine and holy character, which, by the way, encompasses wrath and mercy. And that's why it's so important for us to understand. Why? Because you have multiple verses throughout the Scriptures that, that display it when people would ask him to relent or to turn or to be uh, lessened in his anger towards them. You have situations where he does do that, and you have situations where he doesn't do that. According to his character, God's going to do what's best, going to give him glory, and no doubt a whole city in the midst of life, 120,000 people plus, gave God glory. It's interesting to me because I think this is so important when we look at this. You have two opposites. You have every right of God to, to destroy the evil nature of the Ninevites. And yet, we also know that God has every right to extend grace when He desires. <clears throat> I looked at this through the Scriptures. There are ten occurrences that we see where this rhetorical question used is used in asking God to reconsider doing something else than His presupposed actions. And guess what? This is the only one out of the ten that it's a plea from a Gentile. All the others have been Israel's desire to, to, to have God show His mercy and His grace instead of 
the divine action or course that he has proclaimed through maybe his prophets or whatever the case may be. Furthermore, it is one of only two occurrences where the desire change in God's plan actually occurs. What am I referring to? The fact that when somebody brings God a rhetorical question, will you show your mercy? This is the one of only two occurrences where the desired change in God's plan actually occurs. Why is that phenomenal? I think it's helpful for us to understand the, the character of God, the ability for him to extend his salvation not only to the Israelites, but even to a Gentile nation. So much so, the prophet Jonah is upset, as we will see in Jonah chapter 4. And so here you have an understanding from a Gentile king and people that God could relent from his judgment and his wrath against them. And the thought is, if this happens, it will be because of God's grace and mercy and not because of their actions or their guilt. Listen, when, when somebody repents, they're agreeing with God that, that what God has called to be sinful is actually sinful. That's what you do when you repent. You're rec recognizing my actions are sinful against the holy God. And when you repent, you're asking and calling out for grace and mercy. How do we know that? Like you say, it points back to, the, to verse 10 with these two verses. And they show God's action here. They're there in your outline. God saw, God relents. Those two verbs are, are, are what's happening. God is, the, of course, the object of these two verbs. But let's take this first verb. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way. God saw their repentance. Now, He's letting us know that he saw their repentance, right? Because God is omniscient. He knows exactly what's going to happen before it actually happens. For him to be omniscient, that establishes the fact that he is God. That's what makes him God. So why the sense that as if he was awakened by the actions of the Ninevites? You get that impression that God is watching them and he is awakened by their actions and he's desiring to do something different. I think for us, I think the text tells us that God is desiring to show his heart to us. That he is a God who can bring justice. And he is a God who can bring grace and mercy. It's so important for us to understand that. The God that confirms salvation is through faith and repentance. He wants to, uh, us to understand the significance of that and what these Ninevites did. And by the way, the Ninevites, in a quick they, a proclamation, understood, I think God was probably already building within their souls and their hearts an understanding that, that their ways are wicked, that their ways are evil. But the Ninevites had a right theology of God, that, that he opposed the wicked, and the wicked will be judged, if not on this earth, but in eternity. And we know, Scripture tells us, that God is a just God, that he does and does and will bring Justice to sinners and sin. Now notice something. Verse 10 says that they turned from their wicked way. This, this has the idea of repenting. He recognizes that. This is an action of the Ninevites abandoning their, their sinful ways that have offended a righteous God. I think you've probably seen the memes, you've seen the, the comments. You, I mean, this world today, they offend, you know, you offend me, 
Thus, I want you to do what you want me to do. I, I want you to believe what I want you to believe. And yet nobody's asking, in the midst of our living, are we offending God? That, that is something that, that our world needs to understand. But let me say this. True repentance is for the sinner to give up his sins, to turn from them, to have them removed from them. It not only involves the mind, like I said earlier, to understand what is evil, what is right and godly, but it also involves the heart that turns from evil and turns towards righteousness. That's why in Ephesians and Colossians, you have these exhortations of putting off and putting on. And too often, we understand what to put off, but we fall short in putting on the righteousness of God that He has supplied for you. He wants you to, to live in, in, the, in the godly aspect of, of, of the fruit of the Spirit and, and those things which, which counter the sin nature that we once had. Repentance, so vital today in our understanding of salvation. Jonathan Owens rightly helps us think about this. He is the one who has quoted an understanding about the reality of the mortification of our sin, the killing of our sin. Uh, you've heard me preach about that often if you've been here any, any length of time. But listen, either you need to kill the sin or sin will be killing you. It's that simple. It's that simple. So repentance is about seeking or having a heart to be cleansed, to get right with God, to walk in His ways, to, 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 to be holy as He is holy. Repentance points to God, changing the course of a sinner's life. It points to God showing the sinner what is good and what is right. And this is exactly what God saw. When we look at the context of verse 10, what God saw there was very clearly their deeds, their actions. They turned from their wicked way. And that's so important to understand the significance of what God is, what sees there. What's he doing? He's confirming repentance. He's, re, he's confirming the fact that you must Seek forgiveness. This is what God saw in the hearts of the Ninevites. Now, the second verb in verse 10 is, is this word that, that I, I think has kind of slows us down a little bit, and that's the whole idea of relented. God responds to the Ninevites' repentance from sin with relenting of his wrath and judgment. Look again at verse 10. It, it says, when... When he saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the, the, the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And then re-emphasizes that fact when he says, and he did not do it. And so the emphasis of God relenting. Like I said earlier, it's unfortunate that some of your Bible translations interpret Nahum here in the Hebrew as repenting. There's another Hebrew word that, that would give us that concept, but that's not the word that is used here in verse 10, and it's helpful for us to understand that. Why is that important? Let me ask you something. Is there any evil in God? Repentance often points us to the fact that we have to turn from something, just like what we see in the Ninevites. And to say that God repented is blasphemous. Well, I'll just be that clear. 
there is no evil in God. To say that God repented would be saying that God is turning from his evil or that his, his wrath against sin was evil. And that's far from the truth. Like I said, the Bible is very clear that God has no sin. A couple of verses for your, your understanding of that. Habakkuk 1.13 speaks of God by saying, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. Knowing that Jesus is the part of the triune God, it says in Hebrews 4.15 of Christ, where we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Bible always speaks about God being holy and in terms His believers and calls His believers to be holy as He is holy. I already quoted 1 Peter 1.16, but here it is again, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And when you think about that, holiness is, is, is the otherness. It defines God. It's what defines God. It, it's His nature, His character. It's, it, it's, it's the fact that He is without sin. Knowing that, this is not what's happening. God's not repenting. So what is the meaning of Nahum, right? That, that's the great question of the Bible student, right? And simply, it means to regret, feel remorse, relent. But it also can be used as to comfort and console. It is used in the Bible to refer to either a strong feeling that motivates a change of action, an intent, or attitude, or to the change of feelings through, through comfort and consolation. Now you think about that. When God relents, He gave them grace. And do you think that comforted the people of Nineveh? Absolutely. When you repent of your sins, does that bring you comfort? I hope it does. It gives you a, a resting assurance that God is, is the one that can do that. This word, like I say, looking it up through the context of the Bible, it, it seems to indicate that God's attitude had changed against the Ninevites. That their course of action did, was noted. We see this throughout, like I say, the Old Testament. I think of Exodus 13, 17, Nahum is used of the Israelites and the thought that they would change their direction and return to Egypt when it says, now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds, Nahum, when they see war and return to Egypt. Most common, this word Nahum is used to express God's choice to graciously remit from judgment. We see that in Jeremiah 18.8. If the nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent. Nahum, concerning calamity, I have planned to bring it. Pretty interesting verse. Knowing that a nation would repent. Jeremiah 26.3. Another example, perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may, and unfortunately in Nasby says repent here, it's better to say relent, nay home of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. Now you, you take how Nahum is used 
in the Old Testament, and you'll start to see an interesting pattern. I, I looked at uh, where it first started and how the, the Bible uses this word. The first time that this Hebrew word appears in the Bible is in Genesis 5.29, when Lechem, son of Methuselah, names his son Noah, saying, now he called his son Noah, saying, this one will give us rest. Literally in Hebrew, comfort, give us a home from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the, from the ground which the Lord has cursed. That first use of that word is about the hope of, of a seed from a woman undoing the curse of sin and bringing comfort. The second time Naomi appears in Genesis is Genesis 6, and no doubt you probably are mindful of what's happened in that chapter with the great flood. But before the flood, God looks down he notices the wickedness on the earth, and the Lord said in verse 6 and 7 of Genesis 6 that the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will not blot out man from whom I created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. That word sorry is made home. I am discomforted from the fact because of their evil ways of what they're doing and what is happening. It's interesting to me. You compare that Genesis 6 passage with Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. God relents in Jonah 3.10. God brings destruction in Genesis 6. There's a third consequence. Just to give you another example of this. Uh, in Genesis 24.67, when Isaac was comforted after his mother Sarah's death by marrying Rebekah, you, you get this sense of this comfort, this Nahum that was brought to him. I mean, hopefully you see a pattern here. Nahum is not about turning from evil. It's about bringing comfort and mercy and grace. Looking at our theological workbook of the Old Testament, it helps us to understand these words. It notes this that this word Nahom is generally not used to indicate human repentance. Rather, it's used of God often. It's used of God when he throws the switch. And I think this is so key if you're listening to me. He throws the switch from justice to mercy. And that's exactly what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. This is the best way to see this. In, in the one hand, you have God's justice and His righteousness to declare wrath and judgment. On the other hand, you have God's mercy and grace, and God is the one who is able to dispense one or, or the other or both. I like what Martin Luther said. If you know anything about Martin Luther, the great reformer, he loved to preach out of the book of Jonah. I think part of it is because you just see the whole city of sinners repenting and coming to God. But I quoted him here, and I think it's helpful for us to understand this. He said, the left hand of God's wrath is replaced by his right hand of blessing and freedom. God is, is bringing comfort here to those wicked sinners. So much so, God even still does that. In giving us Christ, he gives us mercy and grace instead of the justice that we deserve. That's why it's so significant when we think about Jesus on the cross, when he said it is finished, he has taken the whole wrath of God for your sin upon himself. And in this place, by faith and trust in Christ, he is granting you grace and mercy and not justice. 
when we think of God, we, we, we often think that He's got to be one or the other. The reality is throughout the Scriptures, we see both enacted. We see God's wrath against sin, do we not, in the pages of Scriptures? But we also see His grace, and we often see His mercy. And of course, that it's all to a point of, of bringing about what gives Him the most glory and drawing people into His kingdom. He's always has always has both hands, right? He always used the first one and then the other. This does not re represent a, a God who has changed. This represents the character of a mighty God who is able to extend grace and mercy. I think it's interesting to me when you, when you study the Scriptures, God lets people realize that He is angry at sin, and then He gives them the solution of His grace. This is what God is doing to Nineveh. He sends Jonah there to, to preach judgment, damnation, condemnation. We'll get to Jonah later, but, but we know that he did not like that. It's interesting to me because Jonah would say, God, we know, and even the Ninevites know, that you're a God of mercy. But this is what he's doing. God knows that they will repent. But he's highlighting the fact that he has this hand, this character of grace and mercy that he desires to extend. All that to say this, the relenting part of God here has always been in the character of our mighty God. He has the ability to bring judgment. He has the ability to bring grace. We know Scripture tells us that he hates sin. Yet, he also shows the sinner mercy and grace in sending Christ. And that's exactly what we see here in Jonah chapter 3. That anger, that anger that, that is, is relents so that he can show his glory and his mercy and his grace. Now you think about that. When somebody comes and is saved, comes to repentance... That's exactly what's, what's happening there. I think that's one of the reasons why you turn from your own sins too, is the fact, the reality that, that you recognize that you are a sinner and that you need grace and you cry out for mercy. And God says, here is my son. If you repent and believe, that mercy and grace will be extended to you. God is responsive to show his hand of grace and mercy. He's showing us the reality of that. And he's showing us the, his character of that. He's showing the fact that, that Jonah this, and, and even us today, that, that, that we think about people, we think about groups, and we get angered at the fact that they're still even alive and that we want God's mer or justice to come to them. We like to see them wiped out. And yet in the midst of this, we need to understand that the best thing that can happen to a sinner is to receive God's grace and mercy. I don't know about you. I, I mean, I, I hate sin. I hope you hate sin too. I'll never forget the time when we were in the process of getting this building and securing this. We had to deal with the city. There was a, a situation where they were dissolving the, oh, the, the, the business ownership here. They had a, a fund that people put, the business put it in which, by the way, the, the business that owned this put into, and they were distributing it because they were dissolving this agency, this, this group. 
and heard about that. We applied to that. And I'll never forget my interaction with the lady that was in charge of this. I would call her weekly and say, where were you at in the process? Quickly did our application, quickly put all this in. Was desiring to receive some, some money to, to kind of help us with the outside of the building and, and the such. And nothing happened. Well, your pastor decided to go down and see this gal face to face. And I was sitting across from her, and, and she was smug. I had heard that she had gotten word out that you telling the other businesses that you better put your application in because the church wants some of that money. We don't want to give it to them. Offended? Absolutely. And so I get in there, and I, and I tell her, what's going on here? Because, oh, yeah, yeah, we got your application, but, but it came in late. I said, ma'am, I know exactly when I can turn that in. And she tried to gloss over that. And she said some other things. And I just looked at her in the eyes. I said, ma'am, God knows your evil heart. He knows what you're doing. You're not fooling anybody here. It's wrong. The point from that point wasn't about the money. It was a point about her heart and her desire to do what is evil. And in, I'll be honest with you, in my soul, I wanted God to strike her dead. <laughs> but the greatest thing that she needs is grace. The greatest thing that she needs is Jesus. The greatest thing that she needs is to repent of her sins and know that there is grace and mercy from a holy God. I don't know if you're like your pastor in that way. I hate the injustice. I hate the evil. I hate evil and calling it good and good and calling it evil. That's the battle that we find ourselves in. That, that's the reality. But in the deepness of our mind, do we have the heart of God? We know that God will execute justice, right? He will. But what the people need is grace and mercy. What the people need is Jesus. Now, why is this important? I want to give you just a couple of theological implications. The first one I've kind of already alluded to. You need to have in your theology the reality that God can and will bring justice, but He also will show mercy and grace. And that it's up to Him to determine how that will go. Now, there's another one I think that's a little bit more dangerous. It's a theology that has been promoted by Clark Pinnock, by Gregory Boyd, by John Sanders, these theologians who believe in what is called open theism. Open theism, and I'm going to put a, a big quote. This is from their mouth. This is from Gregory Boyd. Open theism says this, and I quote him here. He says that the future consists partly of settled realities and partly of unsettled realities. I don't like his first sentence, okay? The future consists of partly of settled realities and partly of unsettled realities. Some things about the future are possibly this way and possibly that way. Hence, precisely, because they also hold that God knows all of reality perfectly. He goes on to give us a distinction. He says, open theists believe that God knows the future as consisting of both unsettled possibilities and settled certainties. In this sense, open theists should and should, uh, could and should affirm that God knows the future perfectly. 
It's just that they understand the future as it is now to include genuine possibilities. How slippery of a slope. I mean, this is a practical theology. When you look at a verse, and if you were to look and do a word search on this word, and if you were just to take this verse, you, you can buy into this open theism, this idea that God is kind of waiting for you to do something, and then that becomes reality. That becomes the course of direction. They would never strip away. Why? They would never strip away God's omniscient because that's a big issue, right? However, they redefined his omniscience as, 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 as having this ability of two, two realities. And depending on what you do, and they quote John 3, 10, and other verses to affirm this, that God is waiting for you to do something, and then that becomes his omniscience. Now, is that an attack on a holy God? I don't know what is. If that is not an attack of, I mean, they might say that they believe in God's omniscience, but they redefine it. That is not biblical. This idea of God is waiting on man to determine the outcome is bunk. It's wrong. In all reality, what they do say in their theology that God is not in control, guess who's in control? Man is. Man has supremacy to determine what God will believe in his omniscience. Listen, when we speak of God's omniscience, we are saying that he knows everything from beginning to end. So much so that this is the same God who created the time in which his creatures live in. God is outside of time. God is not shocked or surprised of the outcome of mankind or what will happen in the future. God doesn't change his mind. For that matter, God is immutable, which means that he is fixed. His character is fixed. The perfect holy one has no regrets. He has no sins to repent of. And this is why this theology is so dangerous. There's nothing for the omniscience of God to learn. He knows it all. Not only that, you couple the character of his omnipresence, that he's able to be everywhere at the same time doing different things. We know of scriptures that he's always hating sin, always bringing justice to the sinner, always turning evil to good. Romans 8, 28, even though that man hurls evil and means it for, for, for harm, God will take the harm and turn it for good. God is always showing his redemptive mercy. And this is what's so remarkable. In so many different places at the same time. Do you realize that? When your pastor was over in Russia, I, I, I was just amazed. You guys were in bed because of the hour change. I would hope you were in bed. But the fact of God just awakening a heart in, in, a, in a place that not, maybe not a lot of us have ever visited, in a, in a farm town, changing a person's heart based upon the truth. He's not a God who sleeps. He's not a God who slumbers. He's always doing things that is according to his character and his purposes. He's eternal. He's unchanging. Like I said earlier, if God could change his mind, we are people who are in the most hurt. Why? Because if he can change his mind about salvation, 
If you say he can change, nothing can be fixed. I think about the immutability of God, 1 Samuel 15, 29, where it says, also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. This God of Israel, for he is not a man that, that he should change his mind. I don't know, how clear can you be? Psalm 102 reads this, Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. That's His mercy. But you, God, speaking to God, you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Think of Jeremiah 4, 27, 28. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. For this earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark, because I have spoken, I have purposed, and I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Speaking about their sin, God displaying His mercy. And even the New Testament joins this course. Hebrews 13.8 speaks about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. James 1.17 says, Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I mean, that's, that, that, is, that is hope. That gives us rest and assurance that we have a God who's going to do according to what He says He's going to do, that His promises are sure, that His salvation is sure. I think as you walk through this, you, you can just dismantle this whole idea of open theism. It can be proven wrong, but you must be in the Scriptures to understand that, right? Our push back from this, our takeaway from this, Understand, God will display his character, will give him the most glory, and he will have either justice or mercy, and he is right to be able to display either one. God will bring his, his wrath to the sinner. If you're here this morning, that, that's a reality. If you're here this morning and do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the reality is that judgment is, is, is fixed upon you. And the only way that God will show his other hand to you is that if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That's the avenue, that's the channel where grace is given. But when we think about God, we can't separate the two. And for you, Christian, the one who has put their faith in Christ, I pray that your theology is strengthened, understanding that God is a God who is fixed and that he's able to display his character in the way that he desires that gives him the most glory. For the sinner, there's hope in Christ. For the redeemed, there's a constant reminder of that atoning sin by Christ because of what he has brought you. Listen, you can't save yourself. You can't work your way to heaven. 
You need a redeemer. You need one, someone to save you. And Jesus Christ is that means. If you have questions about salvation or, or even questions about this verse, feel free to push back. Even if you have an opposing view to this, feel free to push back on this. I, I want you to understand God clearly. I want you to understand this verse clearly. That God is able to do this according to His character, according to His will, according to His sovereignty. And it shouldn't surprise us when God shows His mercy and grace as opposed to what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted damnation and judgment and hellfire, right? And so he's doing something not only in the Ninevites' life, but he's doing something in his prophet life, and I pray that he's doing something in your life. Let us pray. Father, again, thank you for the morning and for the joy it is to, to walk through a verse in its context, to see how you have used that word throughout the Old Testament to, to help us understand exactly what's going on. We know that you are a God that exhibits a plethora of characteristics. We think about your holiness. We think about your justice. We think about your wrath. We think about your grace and your mercy. Your omnipresence. All these things make up who you are, and there's many more that I have not even said. For us to think that you repented or, or are waiting for man to do something so that it becomes knowledge for you. That's foolishness. Help us to think rightly about your character, about your truth. Let us rejoice in the fact that you do bring grace and mercy. It's a given that you will bring justice. But our hope and our proclamation of the gospel is to is to show people that there is mercy and grace only found in the only one that can save us, Jesus Christ. Continue to grow us into your likeness. Continue to grow us in our understanding of the depths of who you are as the living God. And all that is for your glory. Continue to mold us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.